You're listening to a song from, uh, I think, 1995, uh, Joan Osborne, What If God Were One of Us. Um, despite what you may think of the words, it's not a Christian song. Uh, it, it, it was nominated for seven Grammy Awards, uh, won several, but the catchphrase has always intrigued me, her question, what if God were one of us? Just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on a bus. What if God were one of us. It's interesting that when the song first began to play in the mid-90s, people actually called the radio stations uh, asking questions, making statements, enamored with the thought, what if God were one of us? That God would actually show up on our planet dressed just like us. full words of the song may be a little irreverent, but to me it's the sound of Christmas in the sense that God did become one of us, exactly like us. Some of the most important words in the entire Bible are these, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. A little earlier in the service, we sang the favorite hymn, Away in a Manger. And I, I love Away in a Manger. It's a sweet Christmas song. Uh, actually, theologically, don't take it apart too much. Uh, it's not exactly, other than the uh, little Lord Jesus part and uh, the part about heaven, there's really little theology in the entire rest of the song, as sweet as it is. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to bash Christmas songs. I'll hit Santa later on. Don't worry about it. Um, but the point is this. There's a miracle in the manger that God became a baby. God became human. It, it, we don't have to ask the question, what, what if God were one of us? Because God did become one of us. There's a critical recognition, though, that we need to make that God did become like us. See, the miracle of the manger is not just that God became human, God became man, but what God did in becoming man for each and every one of us. A couple of years ago, Newsweek magazine um, did a survey, and in it they found that 67% of Americans believe that the entire story of Christmas is historically accurate. 67%. At the same time, only 24% believe the story of Christmas is a theological invention. Let me see if I can phrase that better than I just did. We've got 67% of people who believe it's historically accurate. At the same time, you've got 24% who believe it's a theological invention. In other words, we need to get between the gaps between what does it mean historically to what does it mean theologically to what does it mean to us. You know, it's one thing to say Jesus is born. There's a man named Jesus who lived and died and some good people put him to death because Americans believe that there was a Jesus in the most part. They believe there is a man who is Jesus who is a teacher and that as a result, if he had not been born, 63% of people believe there'd be less charity in the world. 61% believe there's less kindness, 
less personal holiness, less tolerance, and for the most part, they believe that there would be more war. So that Jesus' coming into the world historically has made a difference in the way man treats each other. But the question that I think arises is this. What if God were one of us? If he was one of us, as Jesus claims, what difference does it make? Who is Jesus to us? <clears throat> here's, here's one of the, the things I, I, I want us to get a hold of just this morning. Uh, I'll try not to take too long to get us to it. But it's this. Who Jesus is has already been determined. Who he is is, I mean, that's a done deal. The question is, who is Jesus to us? In the sense, I don't actually determine who Jesus is. I mean, God is already taking care of that. That's already taken care of. What I have to figure out is, who is Jesus to me and what difference does it make in my life? And I would also claim it's the most important decision of your life. What you do with who Jesus is. So, I know some of you who are longtime fullness people are, are struggling with the fact there are only two points this morning. I'll do my best to stretch it out as long as I can. All right, first, the astonishing claim is this. God became man. God became man. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. One of the interesting things is that John's Gospel starts differently than all the other Gospels. Uh, if you read, for instance, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew begins with the lineage of, of Jesus, going back really through Joseph, back to Abraham. So he starts with Abraham because he's, he's writing a gospel in which he wants to share with the Jews that Jesus is Jewish, he is the Messiah, he is the promised one to the Jews. Uh, Luke begins with Adam. He goes all the way back to Adam and has a lineage that traces back from Adam all the way up to, to who Jesus is because Luke is trying to write a gospel that, that reaches Gentiles, that reaches humanity. He's not so much concerned with convincing uh, those who were Jewish, like Matthew. Mark just launches into the gospel. He just starts with the, um, he starts with John the Baptist actually coming into the world to preach the gospel. So his is more action-packed. He's not really concerned with tracing Jesus' lineage back. John, however, starts with God. I mean, the words, in the beginning, they hearken directly back to Genesis. In the beginning, God created in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There have always been sectarian groups who have resisted the mystery uh, implied in the, in the deity of Jesus, that God would become man. Some have even changed the words to John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, to read something like this. The Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Because this has been a struggle, this mystery of God in human flesh has been a struggle for us really since the beginning. The first 
just a little background that you probably know already, but for the first three centuries, the church was outlawed, it was persecuted, uh, it was in hiding most of the time, but it was growing like crazy, which the church tends to do when there's persecution, by the way. In 312, 313 AD, one of the great things or the most horrible things, depending on your perspective of history, is that Constantine, the Roman emperor, becomes a Christian. Now, Christianity goes from outlawed and forbidden to not only accepted, but eventually the state religion. In 317, just a number of years after that, the, the first council gets together. In other words, the church had been persecuted for three centuries, so they couldn't get like the leaders of the church together to make a decision on some important stuff. So now that it's part of the state religion, they can gather together to, to discuss what's been happening all over the world. Because think about it, a persecuted church hasn't really been able to gather together and talk to one another. So you've got the church in Egypt growing, you've got the church in Antioch, in Asia, you've got the church in Rome, you've got the church in the cities, but they're not really connected with one another. And as a result, different theological perspectives have kind of popped up all over everywhere. So in 317, the first council, where they gather everybody up from the leaders from all over the world gather, and it's called the Council of Nicaea, and at this council, the first question they're going to answer is, who is Jesus? And they come away with this statement, he is very God of very God. The first thing the church decides when they're able to meet together is that Jesus is fully God. This mystery is something that we, is really the miracle of Christmas to me, that God would Jesus, fully God, would leave all his God privileges and come to earth and be born as a man and, and a manger, humble circumstances, that the word would become flesh and make his dwelling among us. There's a story of, a, it's a really corny story, but I like it. It makes me laugh every time I read it. There is, a, you know, back in the days of telegraph, they, they didn't have cell phones, for those of you who didn't know. There's a time when those did not actually exist. Uh, cell phones, pictures, immediacy of information. So this pastor sent one of his guys to a neighboring town to order this big banner, this big sign to go up over his church for Christmas. The guy had written the instructions down, how big the sign was supposed to be, what it was supposed to say, but somehow on his journey over to the neighboring town, he lost, he lost the note. So he telegraphs back to the town, to the pastor, to say, uh, I need a copy, rush a copy of the motto and the dimensions to me. While they were waiting for it to come back, a new telegraph operator comes in, a woman who's, you know, you have to tap those things out so somebody has to translate it for you so the message comes back to this lady and it just simply reads this unto us a child is born eight feet long three feet wide <laughs> it cracks you up every time wow that's quite a baby jesus came as a man to make god known 
It says in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. Now, for some people, they think John may be talking in riddles here, but John is absolutely clear about who's he talking about. The Word, Jesus, made flesh, made his dwelling among us. He is the one who is God, very God of very God, and he has made the Father known. God became human. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And to hear the full force of that word, that that phrase, that passage, it just, you have to receive verse 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word dwelling here, by the way, is an interesting word. We've talked about it in the past. It's the word for uh, to, to set up a tent, to set up a tent. Now, I used to think that to set up a tent was kind of a, he must be implying that it's temporary. Like, a, you know, if you go camping, you set up a tent, that ain't home. That's just a tent. But there's so much more to it because even in the book of Revelation, where it's talking about the end of time, it uses the exact same word. Behold, the dwelling, the tent place of God is with man. He will dwell, he'll set up his tent with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is not a, this is not a temporary kind of picture or analogy. This is a, a thing of permanence. And what it means is this. You know, if somebody sets up their tent in my backyard, um, I, some of you have been camping. When you go camping with people and you've got a tent here and a tent here and a tent here, there's not a ton of privacy. You know, it's really an intimate, more intimate setting. It's not like the way we're used to sleeping with walls and silence and all of that. There's, there's kind of an intimacy to it. So if someone sets up a tent in my backyard, they're probably going to be eating food off my table. They're probably going to get water out of my house. They're probably going to use the bathroom at my house. I mean, there's a, there's a relationship that's developed there. For most of us, we think, again, that when God comes, that surely he's going to live in some palatial estate, some big palace, set up a... You know, we've been reading through the Bible, uh, and we've read about the kings of Israel, and that David and Solomon, one of the first things they did, they wanted to build a temple to the Lord, but because of a number of reasons, they delay, but... Man, they go hard after that palace thing. They build a palace, big walls, separate. You see, palaces and walls separate you from the people. I've been watching this series on uh, Netflix, and again, I don't recommend shows, uh, but it's kind of an old joke if you're a part of here, but it's called The Crown, and it's about Queen Elizabeth, the present Queen Elizabeth. And the thing that, that, that has struck me is how... As normal a girl as she could have been, being raised in the environment she was, that as soon as she becomes queen, there's like this separation between her and the rest of people. There's this divide. There's this lack of accessibility. I mean, even her own mother and sister, I mean, it's really daunting. 
See, we don't have a God like that. As much as God is the creator, God is saying, look, I have made my dwelling, my tent. I want to be with you. I want us to have this relationship of intimacy and not division. It says in Isaiah, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Which, by the way, means God with us. God with us. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This claim that God would become man, fully God, fully man, astonishing. The implication of it is just as huge. The staggering implication is this, that the word brings us into family. The word brings us into family. Here's what I really want us to see as the miracle of the manger today. You know, it's one thing for me to have my sins forgiven. Big deal. Would you not agree that I can get my sins forgiven? It's a big deal that I can go to heaven and not hell. Everybody who wants to go to heaven and not hell, raise your hand. Anybody left to? I mean, great benefit. Uh, where I'm going to spend eternity. But you know, the essence of the good news of the gospel is this, that God has set us into his family. It, It is so much more a picture of the greatness of God that we are a part of a family, his family, his sons, his daughters, because let's face it, you do things for family that you wouldn't do for any anybody else. Hello? I mean, there are things I do for my children I don't do for nobody else. <laughs> I, I kind of laugh at this because, you know, my wife is on staff here, right? Hello? My wife is a children's pastor. There are things she asked me to do that no other staff member would ever ask me to do. I mean, really. They would, most of the staff is not going to say, hey, pastor, uh, I'm running a little short on time. Would you print this up for me? They're just not going to do it. Why? Because there's a different relationship there. If they ask me, I'd do it. (laughs) But my wife feels just free to ask me to do things like that. Uh, Bart, I'm going to email you something. Would you print it when you get to the office? I know you've got to preach a sermon tomorrow. Don't worry about it. Just print this up for me. And if you could fold it and staple it, that'd be great as well. Booker T. Washington talks about being born a slave. And later, he becomes one of the great educators of our country. Um, After uh, the the Civil War and the Emancipation, uh, you know the Tuskegee Institute here in uh, Alabama. And if you've never been there, you should go. It's it's just an incredible, incredible place. Um, He wrote an autobiography called Up From Slavery. And I want to read a short section of this autobiography autobiography, from Up From Slavery. 
The most trying ordeal that I was forced to endure as a slave boy was the wearing of a flax shirt. In the portion of Virginia where I lived, it was common to use flax as part of the clothing for the slaves. That part of the flax from which our clothing was made was largely the refuse, which of course was the cheapest and roughest part. I can scarcely imagine any torture except perhaps the pulling of a tooth that is equal to that caused by putting on a new flax shirt for the first time. It is almost equal to the feeling that one would experience if he had a dozen or more chestnut burrs or a hundred small pinpoints in contact with his flesh. But I had no choice. I had to wear the flax short shirt or none at all. My brother John, who is several years older than I am, performed one of the most generous acts that I have ever heard of one slave relative doing for another. On several occasions when I was being forced to wear a new flax shirt, he generously agreed to put it on in my stead and wear it for several days till it was broken in. Something about that, just hundreds of times over, to me, is what Christ has done for us. He has put on our garments of sin. He put it on so that I could put on a garment of righteousness. He, he did it so that I would come into relationship. And you only do those things, really, in the context of a family. It says in John 1, starting in verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The, the idea here is that Jesus came to his own family first, but his own family, and he's not talking just, you know, Mary, Joseph, brothers. He's talking about the people of Israel, they didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to what? Become children of God. <clears throat> Look up here for a second, then I'm going to move on. Do you know you have very few rights in the Bible? I mean, really, if you're to do a study of what rights you have, I have to be honest, just I'm side-pointing here, but it drives me crazy at times when the church says, tries to theologically imply that we have all these rights. I have the right to be healthy. I have the right to be rich. I have the right to... Guess what? Find it for me. I'll tell you what you have the right to. You have the right to suffer in the name of Christ. In this world, you will have troubles. I'm sorry, this is not a great Christmas message, right? Oh, great. Give me another gift, Pastor. But one of the rights you have is you have a right to become a child of God. No greater right in the earth than to become a child of His. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will. By the way, that's, you know, childbirth and all that. 
but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You have a right to become a child of God. How is that right exercised? It is exercised by what God, Christ has done for you and by your receiving of Him for who He is. Whoever believes in His name. When you believe in a name, you're not just believing in a name. Uh, in in a, the Jewish mindset, in John's mindset, when you believe in a name, you receive that name for all that it implies. You know, we have a lot of people who take this passage, I think, and just say, yeah, I believe there's a guy named Jesus. I believe there's this guy who lived a long time ago. His name was Jesus. I mean, we believe kind of intellectually but John's kind of belief is more of a total reception of who Jesus is and all that he was and is and is to come, what he did for us. When we believe in that sense, we become children of God. Now, here's one of the implications of John's statement. Not everybody's a child of God. This is another hard truth for us to receive at times. And, and God's desire is that everyone would come to him. But the truth is this, not everybody will. Therefore, not everybody is a child of God. Not everybody believes. Here, here's the question I would ask you today. Are you a child of God? Are we children of God? There's a big difference. I'm still in John. I'm just kind of hitting a couple of passages. John 8, 34, Jesus, after he's a grown man, says this, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, here's the truth that Jesus is also, we're all sinners. Everybody's a sinner and is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The movement from a slave to sin to outside the family of God to a son is the difference between out there and in here. Slavery, freedom. Life, life, no life. Family, not a part of the family. How do we know? Romans 8, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. The incredible claim is this, that God became a man. The implication of that claim is that we can become a part of the family of God. Here's, here's what I would like to say to you this morning. First is this. If you're not a child of God, you can become a child of God. By receiving Jesus as God in the flesh, who lived a perfect sinless life and went to a cross to die for your sins. 
and was raised from the dead. And he did it all so that he could bring you into his family. So that you'd no longer be a slave to sin, but you'd come and live in the house forever. Be a part of the family, both now and forevermore. If you are a child of God already, then I want to say to you, there's so much more to being in the family. If God, Paul says it like this, if while we were still sinners, God did this for us, how much more now that we are part of his family will he do for us? You see, you may not be promised wealth and health and a lot of the things, but you are promised this, an intimate relationship with the one who created you. Because he gave you a right to become a child, a brother, a part of the family of faith. Many of us who are part of Christianity are living not as children but as slaves. Maybe this January I'll develop this a little bit more. But the idea is this. Once you're a child, don't keep living like you're a slave. By slave, I mean this. You have to earn, you have to earn the favor of the one who rules over you. Right? Most of us, we have a lot better understanding of religion than we do of grace. The grace of God is this. God became man and did it all for us. We receive it. Now let's walk in the glory of this grace. This Christmas, you're going to be giving away presents to people. Most of you will be giving gifts to someone, and you'll be receiving gifts. The amount of stress it causes to get those gifts, isn't it unbelievable at times? Why is there so much stress? Let's back it up a little bit. Why is there so much stress to give the right gift? Can we be honest? Because if you give the wrong gift, the person's not going to think well of you. Right? I mean, that's why you, you, at least, I'm sorry, I'm talking about my own sin here. But, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I got to give the right gift because if I don't give the right gift, they're going to be upset with me or disappointed or, you know, I, I'm over it by now. I want to give good gifts because I want to bless the people. But if I'm really in relationship with them, then they're going to love me no matter what. If my gift doesn't match their gift, which it usually doesn't, but if my gift doesn't match their gift, then they're going to love me because they love me already. And we're a part of family. We're a part of, it's, it's closer than, oh, my gift. You know, but we still think of God like that. We still think of not because I love God and want to give him my best and want to serve him and love him. I'm doing it because, you know, he, God may be mad at me. God may be disappointed in me. God may not give me a gift as good as what I want if I don't give him something. So I got to give God something good so that he'll bless me more. That is whacked thinking. I mean, really, it's, it's craziness that we get into in our relationship with a God who already gave us his one and only son, the best thing he could possibly give us, he already gave him to us, and now he's not looking up there and saying, hey, I'm going to withhold on you if you don't do blank. 
we need to get in the family, people. We need to get into the heirs, co-heirs, grace-lived life. Now, don't jump into the ditch on the other side and say, you know, it doesn't matter how I live my life. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Should I keep on sinning so that grace can abound? Heck no. No, that's not what I do. I, I love grace and I love living, so I'm going to live to God with the glo- for the glory of his name. In 1994, uh, two Americans, um, once the, you know, once communism fell and Christianity was able to get into certain areas of the country, certain things changed. And uh, actually, the Russian Department of Education asked these two missionaries to go into schools and teach. And so they went in and started teaching the gospel. So they went into this one school that was an orphanage and it was near the holiday season so they start teaching the children the orphans in that place about the story of christ which was read to us this morning about how he came it was born in bethlehem and there was no room for him in the end so he had to go in a stable and he's placed in a manger so they did what you know most children's stuff does they make a little manger scene and you know, at the time, this little orphanage was so poor that they really didn't have even money for construction paper. So the, the, the guys, the missionaries, had taken some yellow napkins or something from the restaurant where they were and brought them, and they cut them all up as the hay. Here's what, in the words of one of the guys in one of the books he wrote about this experience. The orphans were busy assembling their manger as I walked among them to see if they needed my help. All went well until I got to one table where little Misha sat. He looked to be about six years old and had finished his project. As I looked at the little boy's manger, I was startled to see not one, but two babies in the manger. I quickly called for a translator to ask the boy why there were two babies in the manger. Crossing his arms in front of him and looking at the completed manger scene, the child began to repeat the story very seriously. For such a young boy who had only heard the Christmas story once, he related the happenings accurately until he came to the part where Mary put the baby Jesus in the manger. And then he started to ad-lib. He made up his own ending to the story as he said this, And when Maria laid the baby in the manger, Jesus looked at me and asked me if I had a place to stay. I told him I had no mama and I have no papa, so I don't have any place to stay. Then Jesus told me I could stay with him. But I told him I couldn't because I didn't have a gift to give him like everybody else did. But I wanted to stay with Jesus so much, so I thought about what I had that maybe I could use as a gift. I thought maybe if I kept him warm, that would be a good gift. So I asked Jesus, if I keep you warm, will that be a good enough gift? And Jesus told me, if you keep me warm, that will be the best gift anybody ever gave me. So I got into the manger, and then Jesus looked at me, and he told me that I could stay with him forever. When he finished his story, he looked up, he was crying, the people around him were crying, 
put his hand over his face. He dropped his head to the table. He just sobbed. The author goes on and says, the little orphan had found someone who would never abandon nor abuse him, someone who would stay with him forever. Goes on to say, I've learned that it's not what you have in your life, but who you have in your life that counts. The astonishing claim is this, the word Jesus is God he came in flesh. The implication is he came so that we could have relationship with him forever. You can have different responses to this. You can have the response that is like those who were of his own, that says, I, I, I don't know him and I don't want to receive him. I don't know him in the sense of I don't want to be a part of receiving his name. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. You can have that. You can make that choice. Or you can make the choice that says, I, I know him and I receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he became the right to become children of God. This morning, I pray that we will all, whether it's for the first time, to receive the truth that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, to receive that truth for ourselves. For those of us who have long time been part of the church, if we really get our arms around the truth of who Christ is, how dramatically it will change the way we relate, not just to him, but to one another. Because if I'm a part of the family and you're a part of the family, that means what? We're family. And you treat family different than you treat others. Some of you are laughing. I don't know, that's a good thing. Because uh, you're thinking about the way you treated your family. No, you treat them. You think differently. This morning, receive the truth, the claim, the implication, and all that it means for you today. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just allow your truth to rule and reign in our hearts and lives today. The truth of who you are, the blessing. Lord, I, I pray for those this morning that are here that may not have received the truth about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done in our lives. What you've done, Lord Jesus. The miracle of the manger, that God, the Word, the one who created, became flesh. And all that it implied. You made your dwelling among us. We have a right to become children of God. I pray today will be a life-changing day for all of us as we receive the glory of the Christmas message. Lord, we thank you, we bless you, we praise you, we glory in you. In Jesus' name, amen.